kids, kindergarten through second grade, if you want to start making your way to the library for our story time. So a little bit about the story time. We love having the kids in the worship. We want them to, uh, to develop the rhythms and the habits of gathering with God's people and singing his praises. And as we help that transition uh, for kids kindergarten through second grade, we have our story time. And uh, as you can see, we got a lot of kids headed that way. And so we would love to have more volunteers. One way you can serve our church is to help volunteer in the kids' story time. Uh, we try and have you, uh, you know, once a month is the rotation, and we need two different groups. So we need one, a, a reader. So the qualifications for that is to be able to read uh, with emphasis and energy. And uh, then we also need crowd control. So the qualification for that is uh, need to be a little more imposing, a little intimidating, and uh, tell kids I sit down or help with the wiggles, but I'd uh, love to have help uh, out there. And parents, for our, our discipleship hour, uh, we have our worship hour, then discipleship hour with a couple adult classes. And then for our kids, all the kids, we're going to start out on the playground. So you can go out through this hall at 11, kind of check them in, and then send them to the playground. And we're all going to start there, and then we'll disperse, and then we'll return to the playground for pickup. So that's where we'll, we'll start off. So... Uh, we're in Exodus 20, and we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments. And to set up the Sabbath commandment and the commandment on rest, um, the, the, the controlling metaphor and the opening illustration, I'm going to enter into the realm for me of the unknown. So I'm about to start talking about something I know nothing about. So you're going to have to do some extra work to think, oh, I, I think this is what he's trying to say, and you're going to have to work with me here. But our controlling metaphor for this concept is going to be music. It's a rhythm of music. Now, you may not have noticed, but uh, only once or twice in the history of the life of Trinity, one of our worship leaders encouraged the congregation. They say, all right, now, now put your hands together and sing. That happened once, but then I had to reprimand the worship leader <laughs> because personally, now I would love it if we had a little more emotional expressiveness, but personally, uh, I don't think worship leaders realize what, they, what that does to us, uh, to, to those of us who are not only not musically inclined, but are musically declined. And when they give the, 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 the command, put your hands together and sing, it creates deep internal uh, tension because I can't do both of those things. And so, all right, which do you want? I can put my hands together, not rhythmically, but somewhat, but, but can't sing at the same time. And so sometimes Cynthia T, like when we're out on a date and we kind of have the music going and I'll start kind of patting her leg to the beat and she'll start giggling and take my hand and say, all right, let's try doing it on the beat. And as long as she has her hand on mine, moving it on the beat, I can stay on it. But the second her hand comes off, I either get too fast or get too slow or start daydreaming, and it just goes completely haywire. And I want you to think about that as kind of a metaphor, a musical metaphor for life. You know, I've heard from music teachers that are teaching kids piano that once there's certain kind of hurdles you have to get over that one of the hard things once the kids learn the notes is they have to learn to be able to pace themselves and to embrace the silence. Because it's either sound or nothing. And so it's like clapping. I can either go all in and just clap or nothing, 
but there's no rhythmic in between. You think about so much of life, it can be either just all energy or nothing, but what's the, the proper rhythm of sound and silence? To kind of continue with the metaphor, you can almost think of like the Ten Commandments in some ways. Um, have you ever heard a middle school band trying to play like Beethoven or Mozart? Sometimes in kind of our neighborhood, when we're out in the, in the field, the boys are playing soccer, and in the fall, you can get the sound of the high school band practicing. And you can kind of, you, you can pick out what they're trying to do. Like, okay, I, I hear that tune you're trying to play. But then you hear like a middle school band trying to play something like Beethoven. They have all of the ingredients for a masterpiece. But often there's something about the execution that doesn't quite sound right. And you think about like our life, in many ways the Ten Commandments are giving us all the ingredients we need to live musically, to live a musical masterpiece. But one of the most important things is can you get the rhythm right of sound and silence, of labor and leisure, of going and stopping. And so that's what kind of the, the framing I want you to think about is can you... Can you live a rhythmic life where your life is making beautiful music and you have the appropriate rhythms of sound and silence, activity and rest? I could go into another area that I do know a little more about, which is basketball, and uh, who is LeBron James, is without a doubt the second greatest basketball player ever to live. And did you know that uh, LeBron James, one of his things that he leads the league in minutes walked per season. This is his 19th year, and he's, he's mastered the ability of when to have incredible explosive energy and when to conserve and just walk. And in many ways, if you're going to live long, if you're going to live well, we have to figure out that rhythm. And that's what this command is all about. God is giving us the good gift of a weekly rhythm that we can settle into for our life to make just beautiful music, living in a way that we were designed. So we're going to look at this commandment. We're just going to ask kind of three simple questions with it. All right, what is commanded? How are we supposed to do it? And why does he command us to do it? So what, how, why? So let's look at the what. Verse 8 gives us the what. Verse 9 and 10 gives us the how. And verse 11 gives us the why. So let's read all of it and to get a sense. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you, you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Or this is that phrase again, Yahweh, your God. And it doesn't quite come through the English, but the, the emphasis in the Hebrew, the your Work is emphasized. Six day you have your work, and then there's a possessive to the Sabbath. This is the Lord's Sabbath. So six days are for your work. One day is the Lord's day for his Sabbath. The seventh day is the Lord's. It's a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord, Yahweh, he made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. 
So what, how, why? First, the what. Notice the command in verse 8. There's two different imperatives, two commands here. And the first one is remember and then keep. So the command is to remember and keep. You need to remember this every week. We need a, a, a weekly reminder because every week we're bombarded by the world and it's so easy to grow dull and distracted and spiritually soft and fat and weary and lazy and all of these things that we become. And every week you need to remember. Since I was reading one, uh, you know, the, I think of all the commands. You know, this is interesting. I think of all the commands. Um, this one is probably, for reasons we'll talk about, the one that in our world we need the most help with understanding what is good work, what is rest, what is real rest opposed to uh, passive leisure-like leisure consumption. Now, how do we do this well? And one of the things that's become really popular over the last five years is things like taking a digital detox. So there was an article in the Atlantic a few years back called Digital Detox, and the, the writer talked about this novel idea of one day a week not being on any devices. And she said it was like a warm bath for my soul. You think, doesn't don't your soul need a warm bath of, of cleansing? We need that every week. But do you think about the command? The first command is remember. It's not uphold, it's not observe, it's not do, it's remember. If you think memory, remembering something is a cognitive activity. But we were thinking about this, kind of joking, staff me now. Did this is one of the bad things about being one of the pastor's kids is you become the living experiment for sermon illustrations. And so all week I was trying to keep a mental note of when I said, remember. I mean, things like, remember, we're out of coffee. Remember, put up the toilet seat. Remember to look both ways when you cross the street. Our anniversary is next week. So I've been reminded to remember. Your anniversary. And so when you say things like that, when you say, I, do you remember your anniversary? Like, what are you asking someone to do? Like, you're not saying, um, I'm just standing here thinking about it. I'm going to pull it up in my memory. Okay, I remembered it, and then just go on to your day. You're actually um, calling someone to think about it in such a way that demands a response. It's like a whole body engagement. There's something you're expecting them to do. And what's interesting is the call is to remember. And you know, I think probably the older you get, the more you realize that there's fewer and fewer things in life where you need new information. You just need to be reminded of the things you already know, of the things that you know you should be doing. And that's hard in our world because we just live in an information overwhelm where you can get sucked into thinking there's got to be a, a new and a better way to optimize this or be more efficient with that. And it's the call to remember. But notice what we're supposed to remember. Remember the Sabbath day. So remember this day. You think about when do you call someone to remember this day? Remember an anniversary. Remember a birthday. Remember the Sabbath. And it takes us back to the beginning in Genesis 1. What you see in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God is portrayed as a workman. The image in Genesis 1 is that God is like a construction worker and he's building his house 
And this creation, this cosmos is a house for the Lord to, to dwell in. And he's building it. In Genesis chapter 2, he's like a gardener who with his hands digs in the dirt. And he plants a garden. And then he fashions a person. He's a, he's a construction worker. He's a gardener. But the goal... And Genesis chapter 1 is so interesting, and maybe the way we, we do the pagination doesn't help us, because we end chapter 1 at the end of day 6. But day 6 is not the end of, in essence, chapter 1. The culmination is day 7. That's the culmination and the climax of the first uh, Genesis chapter 1. And the goal of chapter 1 is the enjoyment of God in creation with his creation. There's a philosophical phrase that's called, uh, what, is, uh, what is last in execution is first in intention. So it's kind of a fancy way of saying, like, you start with the end in mind. Like, what's last in execution is first in intention. If the intent is to go to grandma's house, then you start by you pack the car, you get directions, you do all the things. And the final thing you do is you pull in at grandma's house. What's uh, first in intention is last in execution. And what's last in execution is the Sabbath. It is the culmination of what creation is made for. It is giving us the, the why of our existence. A fancy way of saying it is this is the eschatological reason for the world. This is what we were made for. And there's so, so many, it's kind of beauty in the way it's constructed, like the seventh day uses this beautiful seven-word sentence, and it's the exact seventh paragraph of that, that sequence, and it's the first day that gets blessed, and it's mentioned three times over and over and over, and it's the first object that God specifically sets aside to be made holy. And he sanctifies it. And kind of the goal is uh, he, he gives the goal to all of creation to be fruitful and multiply, but that's not an end in itself. The point is then to be able to gather that fruit and that multiplication into the life-giving presence and bring it to the praise of God and celebrate with him every seven days. So what is our work? It is the, the fruitful transformation of creation, and it culminates in mutual delight in the presence of the Lord. That's what the Sabbath is. It's the why. Remember the Sabbath. Remember why you're here. Remember this is the purpose, to come into God's presence and enjoy the good world that he's given to us. And the second command is to, to guard it, to keep it. Same word in the garden, to guard and to keep. You guard this day. It's meant to be precious. It's meant to be special. You set it aside for sacred use. There's clearly demarcated space and time for this specific task. You know, one of the interesting things you can do a little reading challenge is to go through Genesis 1 and 2 and mark every time where it says, and the Lord separated. Over and over, he separates things. You here, you here, you in this space, you in this space, you for this purpose, you for that, that purpose. And we need the demarcated time and space. And one of the hard things in our world is just things have become so infused and now you can always be connected and always engaged and don't have the clearly marked, defined space and time. So that's the command. Remember the Sabbath and guard it. Keep it holy. Keep it separated. Don't let the rest of the week crowd in and fill it up. It's to be separate and holy. Now notice the how. Notice what he tells them. And he gives them two things to focus on. He says, your work, and in essence, my worship. 
to our work, his worship. You notice it's, it's emphatic. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. So there's one thing, there's dignity in work, and six days were meant to fulfill our earthly callings. And, you know, if you think about it, think about it this week, like we have very complicated relationship with, with work. But work in and of itself is good. I had a friend who used to tell, you know, uh, we, we worked in, I was about to say the inner city, it was in LaGrange, Georgia, so that's, inner city, but he worked with uh, high school boys, and he'd always tell those boys, this big old black guy who played football, he'd always tell those boys, he'd say, you listen to me, God first gave Adam a job, then he gave him a wife, then he had a child, in that order, you follow that order, get you a job, get you a wife, then you can get you a child, and so that's the order, like that was a gift, the job was the gift. The wife was a gift, so work is, is, a, is a creational good. But if you think about just kind of our relationship with, with work, I mean, some people are out of it and want more of it. They're searching for it. Some people are in it but want different work. Some people are in it but want less of it. Some people hate it and want it to end. Some people love it and can't stop it. So you think, what's our relationship with work? I mean, we even use a phrase like good work. What's good work? You know, so a couple months ago, I can't remember which one of the uh, college football coaches, they, they had a buyout and bought his contract out. So he got paid, like I don't know, it was like $60 million or something to not coach anymore. And part of the joke was, well, that's good work if you can get it. But you think about it, is it? Like, what, what is that joke saying about our conception of good work? So good work is the distance and uh, ratio. So you're getting paid a lot of money to do very little, so good work is the larger the gap between how much money you can get paid and how little work you can actually do. That's good work. We have a phrase, you ever heard the phrase, that's good enough for government work? Like, what's our conception of, of work? You know, I was thinking about this, Andy Crouch talks about the three great revolutions as we think about why you know, we have a hard time even thinking about what work is. You know, there's three revolutions that we live after. The first is the financial revolution, the banking revolution. In 1397, the Medici Bank in Italy, you know, the first kind of public banks. And so you think up until that time, the history of work, I mean, everybody for the most part, something like 95% of the world worked in one, what's the word I'm looking for? Arena, one job. That was agriculture. Like what you did is you produced the, uh, the goods you needed to survive. And so work was very tangibly related to the goods you could produce that you needed to live on. And then post kind of banking transformation, then now work now is, is becomes connected with money. So you cease to work to just produce the goods. Now you're working to produce money. Now we live in a world where everyone works just to produce money. And then the second great revolution is the Industrial Revolution, where before that, all of the work primarily is done by bodies, either physical humans or animals. And then now it's done primarily by machines. And so the role is to make the machines and maintain the machines. And then the last 30 years, we live in the computational revolution, where now nearly all of the work, much, a lot of the world's work is done digitally. So what does that mean that it's now been disembodied and it's just digital? Even money is no longer physical, tangible money. It's just bits and bytes. And so what does that mean? I started an interesting book yesterday, so I'll report back once I 
actually read it. But it was on the different ways that our modern workspace, like we have no idea how this actually affects people. So think about it. Like email has only existed for like 30 years. And we actually have no idea the, the cognitive load it puts on people to be always accessible and always having requests come flooding in. And some of you even know there was a time where like your primary job at work was just to keep it inbox zero. And then now for me, that's just an impossibility. And you spend all of your day just responding. So what does that mean? When digital communication, how do, like how do we think about work when there's no clarity of this is and this isn't? what I'm supposed to be doing. This is, this is hard for us. And what God is intentionally trying to do is help them set boundaries and parameters for this is what good, uh, work is. I was kind of thinking about it when I was reading a couple months ago through Ecclesiastes in my Bible reading, thinking about our guys night and the different like topics we have. And next plug, not this Monday, but the next Monday is our next guys night out. And we're going to meet at Park Pizza. And one of the things we're talking about is the idea of the next commandment, honoring your father and mother. And what does that look like in different stages to honor your father in different stages of, of life? But it's joking because you read through Ecclesiastes and it says kind of the sum of life under the sun is you have to learn how to delight in your work, delight in your wife, and delight in your food. It's like, man, that's not a bad curriculum for God's night out. How do we learn to love our work, delight in our wife, and delight in food? It's not a bad rhythm for life. So what does it mean? How do you delight in these things when it's all bits and bites? You know, we look what God says, but there's two things. You have to do your work, but then notice the next thing you have to do is it's his worship. And this is one of the key marks of God's people in the world. They were the only ones, in essence, to do this. And all throughout the Bible, it would be so interesting to trace the, the, the theme of the Sabbath all throughout the Bible and what he expects and commands and how it shapes the people's rhythms of life. He gives them a Sabbath that's supposed to be weekly. That's a festival gathering where you come and assemble. And then you're supposed to have three weeks throughout the year that are a Sabbath where you do no work and you come to celebrate in the city, the festival celebration. And they're supposed to be one whole year out of every 49. Every 50, one of the years is a whole year of Sabbath gatherings. We're supposed to uh, cycle their, their whole calendar in existence. And the call is to rest, but it's not just, uh, so it's not business as usual. There's an element of relaxation, recuperation, but notice the rest is total. Everyone is to enjoy it. Isn't it interesting? Do you notice, and can I ask yourself the question, who is God specifically talking to? Notice he says, on it, you shall do. Now, this wouldn't go in our Southern Bible translation because this is just you. It's not y'all. This is on it. You shall do. You shall not do any work. But then now it gets very specific. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Who is it primarily speaking to? It's primarily speaking to the heads of the household. It's speaking to the, the, the men of the family, the head of the household. Now, it's a little different in our world because we live in a nuclear family. This world, households are much larger. But the command is to whoever is, in essence, the head of this household. So if that's you, if you're young and single, uh, the you is you. And you don't have anyone kind of under you to set this parameters for. If you're a parent, mother, father, you're the ones he's speaking to. It's your job and responsibility to order 
the rhythm and the life for this house. So the two things that can happen are your work, what you do to produce in the world. So you can let your work and my worship. These are the two big rocks that you put into your week and everything else has to be fit around that. But those are the foundation pieces. Your job is to so arrange your life so you do these two things. Now, it's interesting. Everyone not only has a job to do, everyone has work, but everyone should experience a celebratory rest. So even kids, you have a job to do if you're in the household. Everybody in the household does. And your job right now might be to go to school or to take care of the space that's been assigned to you, like your room. But everybody has a job, and then everybody is called to rest, and it's their responsibility to establish that. You know, one thing that you kind of trace through the scriptures I find interesting. One of the great critiques that, uh, like Isaiah, he frames the whole book around a critique on how they're not honoring the Sabbath. And one of his critiques is that you are celebrating these new moon festivals every month, but you're ignoring my Sabbath. Now see if you can imagine a world like this. But the new moon festival was basically once a month, some type of celebratory thing that everybody in the culture would gather together and take off work to celebrate this thing. So, I mean, can you imagine such a thing on Super Bowl Sunday? And there was one every single month. And so, I mean, could you imagine, like, going into their version of Walmart and every single month there's some type of holiday that they're selling things for? And what God's critique is, you are so energetic about the new moon festivals, you will celebrate those, but you are utterly ignoring my Sabbath. It's his critique, and he says, your calling is to structure your life. So this is one of the cores. Now, why? Why does he want them to do this? And it's because, notice the theological reasons, the four. Why should you do this? Because God... In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. See what he's saying? The reason why you should do this is because you are made in the image of God and he has made you in such a way to follow after that pattern. We are called to be God-like and God's weekly rhythm is one of work. And then one of celebration, rest and celebration. You know, happiness, in essence, in work is the, this is what real good work is, is happiness in work is the absorption into something uh, that you love. You know, the last 20 years have been a lot of work done on the concept of flow. Like, how do you get in these flow states where you get so caught up in something where it seems like all of time stands still? Have you ever had that experience? Do you know in, that, in those moments what you're doing is you're scratching on the door of eternity? You're feeling what it's like for a brief moment to be an eternal being where time ceases to, to exist. And in some ways, that's what good work is. We're called to try and kind of do some of that type work where eternity stands still. We're made in the image of a working God who wants our work to be that way, but it's, been, it's fallen. It wasn't just a pre-creation good. It has been fallen, and because of the fall, it's been 
cursed. And so one of the things that the gift of the gospel is not just the, the, the rhythm, but the restoration and redemption of work. So we can experience that, even if it's only in small glimpses now. You know, I'm intrigued to compare the motivation that God gives in Exodus. The motivation is creation. And you think about why did God rest in creation? It wasn't because he was tired. So that type of rest is not exhaustion. I can't lift myself up out of bed. The type, remember after each day, what did God do when he looked at the creation? And he said, this is good. So the type of Sabbath delight is really celebration. Where you work, you're fruitful, you multiply, and then one day out of the week, you take and you delight in the results of that labor. You celebrate. It's celebratory. This is God's good world, and we're living in it. But then in Deuteronomy, the motivation is a little different. He says, remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So salvation is the motivation. And that really gives us the two, the two uh, motivations for why we gather on the Sabbath, what we would say, or the Lord's Day on Sunday when we, we worship. The goal is to celebrate the goodness of creation and what he's given, and then to remember and celebrate the salvation that we have in him. It's creation and salvation, and the, the glory of where we stand in redemptive history is we have even more reason to celebrate not just creation, but new creation, and we celebrate not just redemption out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt, but salvation and redemption out of the slavery and bondage of sin and death. So we have a new and a greater deliverance, a greater exodus to celebrate. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that fourth command. And even on Sunday we gather because we say this is day one of new creation. We're reminding ourselves of new creation and he transformed both work and rest he says and john i came to do the work of the father that he sent me to do this work of redemption and then he calls to us and says come to me not necessarily come to the sabbath but come to me anyone who uh, labors and is heavy laden and i will give you rest so the rest we need and the rest we seek is a gift that we receive from him. And if we're going to live the rhythm, the music of redemption and a life that's lived well, we have to enter into uh, that rhythm. And even it's been transformed in the old covenant. It was you work six days to earn your rest at the end. But now day one, Sunday is the first day of the week. And we start with celebration, rest, and redemption. And then now our whole week flows out of that starting point. So we begin with the rest and we receive it as a gift. And of course the rest that he offers is deep soul rest. And if you think about the rest your soul needs, it's a lot more than just stopping doing things. That's more difficult actually than not working. See, for many of us, the real problem is not the presence of work or task. It's the absence of rest. You know, I think we live in just such a restless age. We're constantly uh, re uh, looking around, looking for more things, always wanting to consume this, have that, you know, fueled by discontent or anxiety with this internal inner just murmur of self-censorship or feeling like there's something to prove. And so if you want real soul rest, 
where do you go? You hear the call, come to me. We have to go to him. So you think if your own heart is restless, then maybe you haven't really come to him. You come to him. Seek him where he can be found. And if maybe uh, if you don't have rest, you haven't really found him. You know, if you want to meet Mickey Mouse, don't go to SeaWorld. <laughs> don't go to Universal. You got to go to where the mouse can be found. And if you want to meet Christ, you have to go to him. Where can he be found? He's promised to be with his people when they gather. He's promised to be in his word when it's opened. He's promised to give his spirit that when the word of God, the people of God, the spirit of God come together, he will be found. You have to come to me. And then the rest he gives is he can give inner rest where we're released from that self-imposed slavery. Or maybe we just have too much to do because we can't say no to people. Or the internal anxiety where we think we're the ones really running this world. And he lets us step down from being CEO of the universe. and gives you rest, secure identity. Or maybe what we need is then he can also help us discover what outer rest is. And I think this is the thing that our culture, we just get so wrong. That real rest is not passive consumption of different activities. It's enjoying the fruits of your production. So maybe we just have to take time. We're just inactive. You know, one of the things, um, I am all for more times of boredom. I think one of, the ba- one of the bad things in life, especially for kids' development, is they are not bored enough. And sometimes we just need things or time where you're just inactive. Heard about this interesting book review of a book. I haven't read it. You know, it's also a bad idea to talk about books you haven't read and, you know, subjects you don't know anything about. Um, There's this book review, and it was a a fictional novel, and kind of the premise of the novel is that in this town, something happens, and everybody in the town becomes an insomniac. They can't sleep. And at first, they think, this is amazing. Like, we are going to be, like, we are going to be the most productive. Like, we are going to be so wildly rich. And for a while, you know, the town just, this explodes with prosperity. But eventually, it completely disintegrates. And one of the lines is that they didn't realize when you didn't sleep, you also didn't dream. And they just became these cogs in this wheel and forgot to dream about what life really is meant to be and what it could be. So maybe you need to take time to step back out of the rat race and just take time to dream. Or maybe the the, the rest he can give is what we'll call a vocational rest. You know, one of the challenges is they say if you work with your body, you need to rest with your mind. If you work with your mind, you have to rest with your body. I did my dissertation on Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in a, a coal mining town in Wales. And you want to talk about a physically demanding job is working in the coal mines in 1920 in Wales. And you know how those men would rest and recover? They set up these uh, debating societies and they get out of the mine. It's going to be comical to see because they'd be just covered in grime and dirt, these large, kind of gruff-looking men. And then they'd all sit around, and they'd have a monthly book club where they were reading Plato, Aristotle, and Shakespeare. And the idea is you work so hard in this back-breaking labor, the way you rest is you have your mind ascend to higher things. But on the flip side, if you do cognitive mental work, the way you rest is you have to rest with your body. One of the professors at his professor at Westminster Seminary, uh, John Murray, 
one of the great professors in the 1950s, the way he would, every summer he would go back to uh, Scotland and work on the farm for the summer. It's the way he'd rest, avocational, and then contemplative rest. But as we close, I want you to think about the gift that the Sabbath is for your rhythms. But then in Christ, the great gift is come to me and I will give you rest. Real rest is not the kind of thing we can conjure up or we can achieve. It's only truly something that we can receive. It's a gift. We receive the commands to obey its rhythms so we can learn the music. And even slowly at the beginning, if we can't clap on the beat, that's okay. He wants us to make a joyful noise as we fumble, as we move forward and trying to learn the rhythm of this life that's lived well. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Sabbath. Thank you for the gift of redemption. We thank you for the gift of your son who calls us to, to his presence and says, come to me and I will give you rest. So I pray every heart in this room needs rest in some fashion. Maybe it's physical rest. Maybe it's emotional rest, spiritual rest. So we pray that they come to you. We thank you for your body that was broken so we can be made whole. We thank you that you invite us to your table so we can have a foretaste of the feast that points us to the ultimate Sabbath rest when all of creation gets renewed and we get to enter into our purpose for being. So we pray that you bless this time. In the name of pray. Amen. So here at Trinity, we have a couple different ways to receive communion and come to the table. We have four different stations. The one in the back corner will be gluten-free. And uh, you come and you take the, the bread and, and you uh, the wafer and you dip and you remember. So once they're in place, you come.